This is Tectonic, a weekly talk show revolving around the seismic shifts in technology, culture, and the digital age. This is episode seven. I am Joe Darnell, and with me again is my friend Joshua Pfeiffer. How are you doing tonight, sir? Not too bad. Good evening. How are hey, you? Th- I'm doing great. A uh, lot better. It, no one knows out there in podcasts, uh, the podcast sub- subscription services, but I got sick a couple of days ago, and I'm feeling much better today. Man, we we're just a sickly group. Yes, you and I, you and I. I mean, I was I was pretty much out for like two weeks. Oh, it was bad, and I must have sent it up to you. <laughs> it's something about the podcasts. <laughs> we're we're spreading something around. Anytime I hear Dan Benjamin's got something in Texas, it's about a week later I've got it. So <laughs> it was two weeks before that that Merlin Mann had it in California, and it's like, yeah, starts west, goes east, just like everything else in technology. <laughs> Any kind of bug travels around the country that way. We also have with us as our guest, Mr. Eddie Smith of Actuary Fame. How are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thanks a lot for having me on. <laughs> uh, Eddie, I've been following you on Twitter and listening to the podcasts that you've made appearances on and, and, and also reading your blog every now and then whenever I check in. I'm not very uh, careful to read every headline in my RSS feeds, but when I come across something from Eddie Smith, it's probably something that I want to <laughs> click on. And then I'm like, who is this guy? And then I see his interesting logo at the top of his blog. And then I, I read what he has to say. And then I check your Twitter. It makes me laugh. And so I was like, yeah, I need to have this guy on our podcast. Well, thanks a lot. It's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Now, as an actuary, that just blew my mind that you'd be an interesting person. Uh, my brother, <laughs> he works yeah, I'm, in... Yeah, I'm an engineer and I, I just fell asleep just hearing about the introduction. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying I'm trying to become the Neil deGrasse Tyson of actuaries. That's actually my goal. If, if he can do it for astrophysicists, maybe I can do it for actuaries. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and I can see that. I can see that happening. Um, your business model is very interesting too. I'd like you to explain a little bit about your work and how you teach actuary, uh, educational, you know, professional, (laughs) what do you exactly call it in a nutshell? It's amazing. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's one of those things, you know, when I was a quote, normal actuary at cocktail parties, that was bad enough. Like my, you know, best case scenario, people would zone out and I wouldn't have to you know, go any farther beyond the word actuary. But now that I'm even in the world of actuaries, I've really taken a very non-traditional route. Um, it's work that I was doing on the side. I had a more traditional role for about 10 years. and But really what I do today, I mean, broadly categorizing it is it's uh, online education because the internet is our primary medium. We have, you know, live events we do too. But basically the service we provide is we help actuaries pass actuarial exams and actuaries have to take lots and lots and lots and lots of exams and there's a whole little industry around that process and that's where we come in we help people pass them uh, faster than they would without us and uh, the the exams um, have compared to other fields where you become credentialed the exams are more numerous and the pass rates are far lower you can have an exam where only 20 or 30% of the entire population taking the exam passes. And these are extremely smart people, too. Uh, it's just, it's it's a process that filters a lot of people out. So uh, people uh, need help, and that's where we step in. Cool. And an actuary is someone who basically gathers up information, research, and def- defines some very useful statistical information and metrics. Is that the idea? 
Um, yeah, it's like... Or it goes beyond that? Yeah, it really, you know, the profession has really matured to the point where actuaries are in all sorts of business roles, but typically the common denominator is it's typically a quantitative area, and broadly speaking, it's in the form of risk management. So if you can kind of imagine combining uh, probability and statistics and finance and you know, insurance and legal stuff, you know, mash it all up into one thing. That's kind of an actuary's job uh, is to kind of juggle all those things. But certainly actuaries specialize in different areas. Like, you you know, typically you'll have an actuary that specializes in maybe life insurance and annuities. Uh, that's a very traditional role. But you also have actuaries that are working in roles like enterprise risk management, where you're working maybe for a Wall Street firm or a bank or uh, e- even a large corporation that's trying to look at all the risks and opportunities that it faces and trying to put numbers around these things and, you know, confidence intervals and try to figure out, you know, the risks involved in taking different actions. And uh, so it's it's just it's an interesting field for anybody that's, uh, you know, into numbers. I mean, typically, you know, it's very math oriented, but it also has kind of a more like a risk management business type flavor to it. It's a very practical, like if you're into math, you know, if you're, you're a college kid, you know, into math and you're looking for a very practical way to use those skills, then it's definitely a field to take a very close look at. And in addition to everything you said there, uh, Eddie, I just feel like I, I got to bring this up. If you look up actuary on Wikipedia, the picture uh, with the details on what an actuary is and what they do, the top picture is a image of the disaster area from Hurricane Katrina. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is showing the damage from Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Yes. Actuaries need to estimate long-term levels of such damage in order to accurately price property insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And yes. Th- th- just, it cracked me up when I saw that. I was like, Actu- it says actuary. And it yes, shows we, we caused <laughs> we cause that whole disaster, actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> From beginning to end, yes. this is all actuaries doing. <laughs> it's our fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Now, in, in as, re- as it relates back to the themes of tectonic, it mm-hmm. does uh, intrigue me how your kind of work goes to an altogether new level, two miles deep into the uh, like real serious mathematical work and and uh, data digging and and uh, ciphering you just figuring out how things are supposed to make sense mm-hmm. and and when you put them all in paper i trust that they're actually uh, relatively useful something that you, you i mean and i say that because i i wrestle to appreciate your work and i feel like i can get lost in the details i feel like i'm one for the details when I'm in graphics design work, I mm-hmm. can start thinking really deep about uh, pushing the pixels around. Then it's my clients who are like, I- I'm sorry, I just, I don't see the point. I don't see why this font or this font or this stock photo or this other stock photo should matter. And sometimes I fall back on saying, well, you know, a little bit of research points out that this is how people usually respond to this particular colored button on a website. Mm-hmm. You know, they look at me and shake their head like, but I, I like blue. <laughs> so, so it, it always, you know, becomes a, uh, a learning hurdle when you're trying to give, convey how the details ultimately matter. Mm-hmm. And so I cannot imagine how much more complex your work must be when you're trying to engage your clients in the actuary business and make good use of all the information. 
but I trust that y'all, your people have, and you know, actuaries <laughs> everywhere have figured this stuff out. I just, uh, I have to admire what y'all are able to accomplish. It's beyond me. It's, I mean, it's, it's like anything else. If you're interested, like I tell people, if you're interested enough to stay with the exams, you'll figure it out. You know, it's like nobody becomes a surgeon overnight. You know, it takes a long time and, and nobody. And ever... surgeons could talk about their work for days. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I won't do that today, but. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But or just... we, we could just say we edited it all out. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's like anything else. Yeah. You, you, you kind of have to have, I think, an interest in the process of learning it as much as you have an interest in applying it. Um, you know, I think one very common trait that actuaries have is they just, they're very self-disciplined. And I think the field kind of gets a bad knock sometimes because it, there's a perception that a lot of actuaries are introverts and that that's a bad thing. And I think it's true that a lot of actuaries are introverts, but I think it's actually a really good thing. I think it's a great thing that in the 21st century, you still have people that can sit down and wrestle with the problem for days and get it right, you know, that aren't going to lose or get distracted by something else. Right. And that's really what, you know, you have to do with a lot of the work. But, uh, um, but, but the stuff I do, like the stuff that I get paid to do nowadays is not so much like I'm not practicing as an actuary, but I'm helping people uh, master these exams. And, and what I really enjoy is being able to take, um, you know, this really complicated literature that they have to know for the exam and kind of boil it down into something that's, not only easier to understand, but even entertaining to get through because the exams are just so tedious. I mean, the, the right. level of reading that they have to do. And I just, I feel really fortunate that, you know, I kind of live in a time, like I kind of hit the my stride in my career at a time when the internet makes it possible to make these kinds of products that I can deli- deliver to people literally all over the world, you know, and have a viable business. Whereas, you know, even 20 years ago, it, it, people were kind of doing something similar to what we do today, but not nearly the scope uh, and, and, you know, and the level of detail that we are able to do it today, just because technology uh, enables us to do that. So, right. so I, you know, I get to play with all this Mac software and, you know, geeky stuff like that. And I get to kind of bring all those things together I don't even feel like it's work most days. I enjoy doing it. It'd probably kill most people from boredom, but <laughs> but I enjoy bringing those different areas together. Very nice disciplines, right? And and that and that that is one of the I guess the reoccurring themes in our in in our uh, podcast so far. It, you know the, the the seismic shift of uh, of education. You know whether it be preparing for uh, tests or or you know, homeschooling kids from kindergarten. That's kind of where we're at right now with our kids. Uh, you know, whether it's preparing for SATs or taking college courses online, like all of this stuff is just, just radically changed in the last 10 to 15 years. It's really cool. Yeah. I'm really like interested to see what happens in the next five years or 10 years with sort of companies that do what we do where it's really this whole with the video content well it's like this niche education area that didn't exist like you know traditionally you had your university or your technical school or something like that and the, the concept of this really sort of niche professional you know educational outlet where people pay you know for content it just simply didn't exist uh, at least in any meaningful numbers until really very recently, and it's going to be, you know, you hear all this talk about what they call MOOCs, you know, these these big, you know, university 
warehouse, you know, outlets. And I feel like that's like the wrong approach. Like, I I mean, maybe that fills some needs, but I think there's tremendous opportunity to create these little micro companies that can serve these really specialized professional interests and do like just really like a bang up job uh, with an educational product and deliver it. And, and if your market is the entire world, if you're only serving a handful of people in each state, right. you know, uh, of the country, but if you're serving China and India, you have all these, you know, developing economies throughout the world. I mean, it's it's really exciting to me just to think about just the opportunity. And I don't think people have really, like, gotten their minds around that yet. Right. We haven't got our minds around the mediums yet because yeah. this is a podcast. And for a lot of people, a podcast just means it's a talk show. It's all audio content. But then other people take it very differently. They expect a podcast to be video content. They want it to tell a story. And so their favorite uh, content might look more like something like 60 Minutes. And then others, it's, uh, it's a music video. But what we're seeing is, over time, a, an amalgamation of all the mediums so that written content, presentation content, podcasting-like content, and video content are all folding together. We're making this content omelet of sorts where you just got everything <laughs> I like that yeah <laughs> together and you and you're digesting it in an all new way I was thinking about this with some of my friends in a, a various startups here in the Atlanta area and I was recommending to them for some of their websites they have a a large family of websites that have content everything from you know current events and the news to video game websites and the like and one of the points I suggested to them was that in the future, I think that educational resources, informational resources, and entertainment are all going to be intertwined more and more so. Yes. Because the most effective stuff is the, are the things that are teaching you and entertaining you and imparting altogether new information and ideas at the same time. I agree a thousand percent, yeah, with what you said, like the idea that entertainment and education are not mutually exclusive and i and you i think you can point to all kinds of examples even in modern culture i mean if you look at it happens accidentally with some movies yes and with some online courses or even look i would even go so far as to put throw in like uh the colbert report john stewart yeah uh, like i don't think it can be understated the impact that they have on the delivery of news and then you have a, what's is it paul oliver john oliver i always get his name wrong the uh, the Edward Snowden thing that he did recently, I don't know if you caught mm. that. I mean, th- that was profound. I mean, it was like like completely encased in fifth grade humor, right. but it w- but it was delivering you know this uh, profoundly important message. You know, this interview with right. Edward Snowden about you know these stuff coming up with the Patriot Act and stuff that you know American citizens should be aware of. Um, but yeah, it, you know, so it's it's news, it's education. And I totally agree. That uh, the entertainment value, I think, is critical for to the success. You know, you will, you need something to make people sit in front of the screen because I think that's where, uh, like, the Udacities and you know some of those companies, the the, the first phase of online education where they really stumbled was the idea was okay, let's just kind of clone what we were doing in the three hundred person college stadium classroom and let's put it on the internet and. Oh, why is no one watching past, you know, the first week of the course, you know? <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine why nobody's yeah. showing up. Uh, probably the same reason that college kids don't show up in person to begin with. So, um, <laughs> Tell me. So, yeah. So, it, it's it, it'll get there. But I think it's going to take some pretty innovative, you know, people to just willing to take some risks and just kind of do some different things. 
Right. And the kind of work you're doing is actually teaching people somewhat one-on-one, even though your video material is going out to thousands of people. If I understand your website and your business model correctly, it's uh, your people and people like you that are delivering these lessons in video content form to others that are just watching them right off of the internet on their personal computers, correct? That's right. They're sitting at their desk at work. You're you're Uh, giving them a private tutor session. And that's awesome. I mean, that's that's really concentrated, especially impactful learning. Yeah, it's it's very much evolved to that point where, like, I, I've realized that the most effective lessons are ones where, like, I will take this, you know, problem that they may encounter on the exam, and I'll kind of, you know, create this foundation, and I'll start adding more elements to it, and and I'll basically tell them, okay, pause the video now, work this out you know, and, and then play the video and then we'll walk through the solution, you know, and it's, it forces them to be engaged. And it's so much more effective than a live event because inevitably, you know, you have 50 people sitting in the room there, you know, you have 50 different paces, you know, of, of progress. You know, I mean, people all learn at different rates and you can't pause a live person and make them go back. But with video, if somebody doesn't get what I'm saying or needs to see something again, they just move the scrubber back uh, a couple minutes, <laughs> yes. you know? And that's why I think video in general, like a, a well-done 10-minute video is worth five hours of live seminar content, <laughs> in my opinion, yes. because it can be watched anytime by anybody, anywhere. It can be watched more than once. It can be rewound. Probably nobody under the age of 30 knows what rewound means, but but you know, but you know, yeah. it, it removes the time element completely, and I think that's the big thing. Well, speaking of the time element, the stats, statistics, and the the little details like that, um, you know, digesting information. How exactly do you think that all this data is going to help everyday people? You know, Apple and Fitbits, Apple watches, and you know, uh, fitness trackers seem to be the latest uh, craze. And this is one thing I wanted to talk about a lot more on our show over time. Because I, I'm starting to, p- to take a more serious and mindful approach to my, my fitness this year. And I, I was a runner back in high school. And then off and on, for training myself uh, after I got married about eight years ago. And then for a little while, I had a coach in the gym. And that went well. But I, I was really excited when I was introduced to the program called um, FitStar, which is available on the, the computer and a web browser or straight off of apps on iOS. And what it gives you is a personal coach. They give you a workout program. You do it 30 minutes a day. And then it gives you stats on how you did that day. If you did everything down to the T, it'll ask you, how long did you do this particular exercise? And how did you feel it? Was it brutal or was it too easy or was it just right? And they, they get all this information on me and then they're able to show my performance over time and and then we have these sleep trackers. You know, I, I picked up one of these called Sleep Cycle a few years ago. It would probably was right after it came out. And the reason I got it was because I was looking for a good alarm to wake me up in the morning. And the benefit of using an app like Sleep Cycle was that it would calculate when the best time to wake me up in the morning would be based on my motion in bed because of the motion sensors built right into the phone. If I could leave the phone on the corner of my bed it would know if I was stirring in in a light sleep. And then at that time, in a window of 30 minutes, you know, in the morning when I was about ready to get up, it would wake me up when I was at my lightest sleep 
So it'd be the easiest moment to wake up. And I thought that that was brilliant. That's a great alarm clock. But then as a bonus, it gives me all the, this sleep tracking information, all this other data, statistical information on myself. And then Fitbits came along and I had friends that picked up Fitbits and I I really wanted one, but I never, I never got one just because I wasn't quite sold on the idea. And I was hoping that a better solution would come about. And then, you know, we got the Apple watch. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What are you thinking guys? And specifically you, Eddie, I, I wanted to hear what you think about this because you wrote the article concerning the Fitbit one and comparing it to your fitness tracking with the iPhone six and you know, I'm just kind of wondering, like, where do you see statistical information really helping everyday people? How do we see that people are actually going to use this information? And uh, how can, where is it all headed? I mean, what, what should we expect to see in five years? I'm kind of interested to see that myself. I, I feel like I'm old enough now to where I've really started to realize, especially with technology, is whatever we think is going to happen in five years uh, it probably won't happen. And whatever amazing thing does happen, no one's thinking about right now. So I think I think as things start to accelerate and the whole like I hate the phrase big data, uh, the the band is actually not that bad. They have some catchy tunes, but the actual <laughs> the actual <laughs> I don't know if anybody's heard of that. Probably nobody got that. Uh, uh, they're going to be in the show notes now. Okay, <laughs> everybody's going to hear them. They're going to get discovered on this podcast. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, they'll probably sell a couple of tracks on iTunes from that. Data is such a double-edged sword. I mean, it's impossible to ignore the privacy angle. But at the same time, I'm I'm generally pretty excited, uh, particularly about health data. I mean, I, as you, if you, if you read even half of that article on my blog comparing the Fitbit and the iPhone, you can tell that I kind of went crazy trying to compare those because I just it, it's I, I was I think the first thing that amazed me is the fact that when I got a Fitbit a year ago, I actually wore it like for all practical purposes, every single day for a year. You know, I mean, it's like the idea that I would incorporate this new device into my life that had to be charged, one more thing to charge, but the feedback I got from it was so cool, and I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I think that the biggest uh, promise or, or, you know, my most optimistic view of what health data will bring about is that it will help people make much more objective decisions about their health and it will kind of remove the um, like, you know, perceive that maybe they're more active than they really are. But the numbers are just much more objective. And I certainly found in my experience that routinely looking at just a simple graph showing me how much I actually walked, I was so much more likely to walk into downtown from my home the next day to kind of get in some steps and that kind of thing. And I, I mean, I have no doubt that it had an influence on me that way. And I think that when you sort of extrapolate that beyond just walking and look at some of the stuff, you know, Apple's doing with these new health apps and stuff, I think just putting simple, not even complicated information, but just information in front of people about their activity. I mean, what, what I think would be awesome is if something could tell me, and maybe it was somebody tweeted this at me. There's a company that's figured out a way. I don't know how accurate it is, but figured out a way to monitor your calorie intake. And I think that would be amazing. Like if you didn't have to like manually record it in something like my fitness pal or something. Right. But, you know, but, but I firmly believe that we're heading for a future where we're going to know practically in real time, what's your heart rate, what's your blood pressure, even just basic vital statistics about your body. And I think that 
uh, it's going to prevent, I, I guarantee, I mean, it's going to prevent strokes that would have happened in people probably. And I'm not, I mean, I don't have a medical background, so I'm not really speaking from from that point of view. But just it seems logical to me to think that we're kind of heading toward a future where we're going to be so much more informed about our health. And I have to believe that that's going to head off problems that people would probably have otherwise. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a good thing. But for now, yeah, I've actually, you mentioned the sleep app. I've got one called Sleep Time, and I kind of like that too. I just kind of like saying, because I think sleep is important, and that's another one where you think you're getting, you might think you're getting seven or eight hours of sleep a night, but you probably are getting five or six. (laughs) Right, and even when you are getting eight hours sleep, it's actually closer to seven, and then when you look at the quality of the sleep, you're thinking, ah, maybe a 90, right? No, it was more like 73. Yeah. So, yeah. It's very transparent and it wakes you up, you know, to be a bit more objective about this information. It helps me as someone who thinks that the eight hour sleep is important to my my general productivity from day to day to try and, you know, be motivated to get to bed at a decent hour Mm -hmm. and to get up at a decent hour so I don't oversleep either. You know, in general, it's best to try and keep the same rhythm every day. Mm -hmm. Even when you get to the weekend, you want to sleep in. This is the one thing that bothers me about my app. It gives me the option to track my sleep on Saturday and Sunday, but deactivate the the alarm. So uh, uh, when right, I'm in yeah. my when I'm in my rhythm and I come to Saturday and it says, "Are you ready to get started?" I press OK, and it doesn't give me an option to set the alarm. I'm like, "Oh, right." It's assuming I'm going to sleep in. Yeah, and I'm like, "Well, you know, that's that's what we want to do when we want to indulge, but also, you know, kind of messes me up." So I try, I try not to indulge in that activity. Yeah. And so I use another app to tr- try and take care of that on the weekend. Yeah. Well, I actually have another technique for that on the weekends to ensure that I never sleep in. It's called having a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. Yeah, those would work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't remember sleeping in. I don't, yeah. What is that? What is this thing called? What is yeah, so I, <laughs> it's funny. I actually, I actually go, just go ahead and set my alarm on this app, sleep time, even on weekends, because... I know I'm going to have to get up anyway because, like, there is no such thing as sleeping in anymore. That 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 part of my life is oh, ancient yeah. history. Oh, um, But uh, but yeah, but but it forces me to end up collecting all this data, which I honestly haven't done a lot with. I'm kind of looking at it now, but it is interesting to look back at the trends and just I think just simply looking at these rolling averages to see, okay, you know, what's your average duration. You know, I, I kind of have a feel for how much sleep I should be getting. Like, and I truly believe I'm I'm more productive during the day if I can get it, you know, about seven on average, if I can do that. And if I'm consistently getting less than that, I think that it starts to carry over to my work. So it just kind of helps you kind of incorporate that into broader plan, you know, and just try to make sleep a priority, which I think a lot of, you know, it's just hard to do these days because there's a billion things you could just you know, keep doing into the night. <laughs> Well, and that's that's one of my interests in having the watch is that I want the watch to offset how much time I want to spend on the phone or the iPad as I'm getting ready for bed. If I can glance at Twitter on the watch while I'm brushing my teeth and getting ready to settle in and turn off the lights, then I don't feel the need to keep checking and rechecking and checking and kind of getting like glued, my thumbs glued to the, the screen of my iPhone as I'm plugging it in and setting the alarm whatever time that may be. And it's so easy. That's the one time that it always gets me. I don't get caught up in Twitter or cat videos at 12 or three o'clock in the afternoon. 
It always hits me at bedtime. Yeah. That's just because all the cat video apps for the Apple Watch suck right now, right? I mean, eventually they'll <laughs> Yes. <die. laughs> and as soon as they get good, I got to get rid of the watch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that could actually be a really good app to, to make. Just And people would download it just as a joke, you know, and maybe, maybe make some money, the cat video app. Sell it for 99 cents, yeah. All cat videos on the internet in one place. 99, yeah, just 99 cents. Swipe right if you like it. Swipe it left if you don't like it. Yeah. Where, where have you heard of this idea? <laughs> you hear what you're saying eddie about the trajectory of all this data you know consumption and right now what we see is people everywhere big businesses like facebook all the way you know over to there the apple and into us we all recognize that all this data is very important we just haven't ever had this kind of information in human history before mm-hmm. And now that we have it, we're not exactly sure what to do with this level of the information. Mm-hmm. So what I do like is to see that Apple has opened all of this research to organizations where they're going to be using this for health research, studying everyday people concerning a variety of different health disorders. Because it's really amazing when they gave that last announcement back in March and they pointed out that with just the, the few apps that they had uh, tracking a, ver- a variety of patients with a few key uh, conditions, that in less than 48 hours, they had more information on like 1,200 patients or something like that than they had gathered from groups of hundreds of people over two years. Mm-hmm. And it's like mind-boggling that yeah. we could do that now. Now what do you do with all that information? Yeah. Well, they have it. And it's solid information, but now they need actuaries to come along and tell us what to do with it. <laughs> and, you know, you know, kind of half joking about that, but I think that data science is, is going to be an even bigger field because, you know, it's one thing to have all the data, but people who are not well trained to work with data will naturally uh, see uh, patterns in the data that don't exist. It's just simply how the human mind works. Um, right. You know, and you, you kind of see this already, like with a lot of sort of knee-jerk journalism on the internet. I was about to say, and then they'll go write about it on BuzzFeed. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I um, I ended up holding my tongue. I ended up writing, I, I haven't said anything about this, but I wrote this really, really long draft where I was going to be highly critical of uh, all these news outlets at the height of that measles meme, I was I was planning to to, to publish this post. It was just going to lay into like everybody that was in sort of the you know this attack mode where they were you know going after the anti-vaxxers. Which, for the record, I completely believe in vaccines. I get vaccinated. My kids get vaccinated. It wasn't about that. It was about the way the reporting was being done and the sort of pseudo conclusions that people were drawing from very preliminary data. And it concerns me a little bit because I think when you mix the speed, like the mediums we have now, the ability to deliver information so quickly that the potential for maybe some really, really nasty consequences to come out of knee-jerk reporting, I think the, the stage is now set for probably some really epic disasters, some epic media disasters. And we don't, you know, it's hard to know exactly what form that will come in. But something is going to happen to trigger really just bad situation, I think. I mean, I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom, but I just feel like the stage is set for somebody to really abuse big data for the sake of, you know, drawing a lot of attention we just really need people who can process the data and figure out a way to do it quickly to kind of get ahead 
of some of those things. It's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out and, you know, even kind of tying it back into the insurance and actuary concept. I was having a conversation with a friend recently. You know, there's these these rumors have been kind of, you know, going around for a while now that Google might get into insurance or something like that. And, you know, if you kind of stop and think, you're like, well, that's crazy. Google insurance. But if you think about how they can track all the data. Yes, they have the data. They have more data probably than most insurers have on their own policyholders when it comes to lifestyle and and things like that. I mean, they could totally underwrite people probably just with their web searches and what's going through email, you know. And so it brings to, you know, there's all sorts of ethical issues that are going to be around this kind of stuff and you know, where do you draw the line? But I mean, but if Google can, you know, make use of all this information to make for example, term life insurance even cheaper than today's companies, maybe that's a better thing for consumers. It's more affordable, but they're giving up privacy, you know, and so it's going to be, if you're looking for a major in college, <laughs> maybe going to ethics or something, maybe big data ethics, because <laughs> it's going to be a huge, huge conversation going forward. Well, going back to the health data and what's available now and what's available in the future, I've not been terribly excited about what's currently available, you know, heart rate, sort of kind of pedometer, you know, kind of tapping on your wrist to remind you to stand up. I mean, that's all pretty basic stuff, but I mean, it, it's it certainly is setting a, a, a trajectory in the future. Like, I'm kind of sort of looking, with all the caveats we've already mentioned, kind of sort of looking forward to the day where we have some sort of implant in our bodies that that will kind of give us real-time uh, information on you know blood chemistry and hormone levels and all, all sorts of things so you know think think about it for say like a diabetic you know if they're eating something that some sort of real-time feedback of of blood sugar levels that sort of thing and of course it'd also be huge for you know if you could tie it into the to the research that apple's getting into as well i mean it could be really amazing amount of data you know, the medical researchers could use to really do some amazing things. Now, me personally, I find that very scary. Uh, having an, an implant to track information, I'm sure that that's exactly what it would do, give you an, uh, an implant to track you uh, in a variety of ways to benefit your health and, and also research. But it, it does intimidate me. At the same time, I'm drawn to things like the Fitbit and the watch and maybe it's because it's just so simple. They they just want to track track my steps, my calories, and my my heart rate. Right? It sounds safe and and wholesome uh, <laughs> today. Anyway, it seems more accessible and user friendly. Remember when uh, Tim Cook was talking about the watch? He kept on you know saying that this is the most intimate Apple product that they've ever made. <laughs> It's going to get more intimate here pretty soon. <laughs> and, and, and he bothered to stress that, and a lot of people have noticed it, and it's one of the trademarks of the watch. And, well, not just Apple Watches, but the Androids as, as well, and, and all the Fitbits. I think Steve I, Jobs I, actually yeah. used that phrase when he was introducing the iPad, if my memory serves. Oh, really? The, yeah, that it was the most in intimate way. I think he used that term basically, you know, sitting on a couch, kind of looking at looking at stuff. It was the most intimate uh, Apple experience. So it just keeps getting more intimate. There's an tr intimacy trajectory. <laughs> but um, it's a different sort of intimacy. And, <laughs> and uh, it, it's, I don't know. I'm not ready for the iBod 
just yet. Uh, I'm sure it's going to come, but uh, I'm much more comfortable with just the Apple Watch. And I was kind of curious, what do you think about the SETI? Uh, where, where do you see the, the fitness tracking device, the hardware going? Do you see that happening in the not too distant future? Or do you think people are just on the, uh, you know, almost ready to kind of like <laughs> bite the bullet and accept whatever may be and whatever invasion of privacy they may have with such a, a device? Yeah, I, my personal feeling is that it's it's something that's fairly unstoppable. I think it's inevitable. And, and I say that because I just feel like, you know, just like people had a hard time understanding or getting their minds around the fact that the iPhone could become essentially the dominant consumer computer. I, I think a lot of people probably still have a hard time thinking about it that way, even though it is. Oh, you know, yes. how, how it could replace a desktop or a laptop in terms of your primary computing device. I I fully expect hardware to continue getting smaller and, to use Apple's word, more intimate. If, if you define that to be closer to really, you know, your, your body in terms of, you know, yeah, I mean, if you look at how people use an iPhone, I mean, you know, I think intimate's a pretty good word. I mean... Look at the typical married couple. They're probably laying in bed looking at their iPhones, you know, at night. I mean, intimate, you know, for better or worse, is probably the most perfect word they could use <laughs> for the technology. But but the Apple Watch, I think, like what I've kind of started to learn to realize is that, you know, it's not about the iPhone 6 or the 6 Plus, or it's not about the first Apple Watch. It's really more of a, sort of a gradient through time of technology. It's like this is... This slice of time right now, this is what exists, and the Apple Watch is just, it's not so much the Apple Watch as it is the prelude to what will follow the Apple Watch and to what will follow that and what will follow that thing. Right. And I don't think it's a matter of does the Apple Watch become a success or does the Apple Watch uh, sell in the numbers that the iPhone sells in. I I think it probably won't, Uh, but uh, I think that it represents sort of a trajectory of technology and when you look at the interest Apple has in that and if you look at the fact that all Apple has to do is mention that oh hey next year sometime we don't even know when we're going to make a watch and then this wave of you know other companies start to release watches and so that stuff's already in motion and it's not going to go away and even if it you know the watch thing peters out you're going to see something else. And we probably don't, we, it's probably beyond this to really know what it will look like, probably even in five years. It's hard to imagine what these very, very talented and well-funded companies are, are cooking up. And it's just a matter of, will they hit the market with it when the timing is right for it to sell? But I really think that hardware will continue to shrink. It will continue to become more energy efficient and more independent of charging and batteries. And couple that with the cloud, it's pretty obvious to me that we're moving toward a future where we will basically have real-time tracking of probably just about everything. And I think it's hard for us to kind of accept that now, but I really think that... We're going to get used to it much faster than we realize. I think so. I think that if you go back 50 years or 100 years or 200 years, people's perceptions of what's taboo or what's appropriate obviously are very different. I mean, look at look at what people wore to the beach, you know, as a bathing suit 50 years ago, what was accepted. I mean, I think that for better or worse, I think our views of privacy will change. 
Um, I think that we will become more accepting of the fact that companies know this, quote, intimate data about us. My my biggest concern where I draw the line is if it begins to infringe on civil liberties. You know, I think if we end up in a state where we are uh, truly losing freedoms that, that are probably today viewed as fundamental, uh, I think that's where it's a net loss uh, as a culture as, as opposed to a net gain. And I think that's a very real possibility. I think that information is already out there. And, and as that John Oliver episode, you pointed out, nobody cares unless it's yep. very, very intimate. And, and if you've watched the episode, you know what I'm talking about, uh, but we'll keep it PG. Yes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> not say not safe for work, not safe for kids. Yeah. But I mean, Americans in general do not care. <laughs> that's that's the sad that's the sad state, you know, of of the things that we already know about, let alone what's what's coming in the future. Yeah, they don't it's not so much I think part of it's that they don't care and I think part of it is these issues that are important are now entwined in concepts that are just above the layperson. I, I, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's just, I think it's almost asking too much for somebody to really understand the technological side of it. And, and that's a little scary as well. Along those lines, I'm just looking at what the Apple would like you to start monitoring with the fitness trackers on the iPhone alone. They want you to have, you know, your, your fitness data in there general information about who you are, your, your race, your size, your weight and, and age, it, what your nutritional habits are. You know, that would be a very manual thing to enter into the phone, but they would like to have that information for your benefit from, from a certain point of view and also sleep tracking and, 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 and tracking of your vitals. But, but all, but all of that together, if you had it in there now, it would actually be very valuable data. Mm-hmm. It'd be very helpful. It could potentially save your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, in many cases, you show you show up at the doctor having that kind of medical history. If it were thorough, can you imagine how it would just accelerate diagnosis and everything else? Like this could save your life. This kind of journaling would be far more important than anything that a thirteen-year-old girl is putting into her day one journal. I mean, like this is far more interesting information in the long run that we should all take advantage of. For our benefit, though, right? No, like that's that's the caveat that once it becomes a situation where this is for the the benefit of the state or an, another huge organization, that's when it gets nasty, and it's going to be very difficult to draw the line in the sand between when are you benefiting a citizen, a citizen or a customer, or just an, an everyday person versus um, well the interests of the many. That's when it gets uh, kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You just hope, yeah, you hope that you can benefit from it and that the long-term, you know, repercussions aren't there, but you know, it's uncertain and, and there's, yeah, and it's inevitable. Yeah. Like you said, I, I think it is. I, I think it is. I, I think barring some completely unforeseen, you know, setback like natural disaster or something like that, I mean, I, I just don't see how you're going to reverse the current trajectory uh, of where both hardware and as cheesy as it is to say the word cloud computing, I mean, I think that's a huge component as well because you need computers that are able to make sense and process this just tremendous amount of data being sent to them literally every nanosecond. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just incredible, really. Yeah, I, I completely agree. 
Right. So, so em, em, embrace the inevitable, you know, be prepared to <laughs> be prepared to, to fight and, and stay abreast of, of the, of the security issues and the, and the sharing issues. But, but, you know, look, look at it from the optimistic perspective of what it can do to help you, you know, yeah. in your own try life. To, try to make it work for you. I mean, that's kind of my philosophy is, you know, get value out of it. Like if you're going to be sacrificing something, you know, at least, get, you know, get something out of it for yourself, you know? So, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's it to a T. Well, Eddie, thank you so much. I think we have everything we needed for episode seven. Uh, everything just fell right into place. Nice. I wanted to, to talk to you more about your actual experience with your own watch and uh, we just ran out of time, which is a good thing. So we'll have something to talk about the next time we have you back. Cool. Yeah. I'm sure that the actuary's watch is going to be the, the most desirous. It's going to have the most useful information of all. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, we will definitely want to hear about the actuary's watch. Are you going to continue to talk about it on your website? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can't wait. And I, I don't know if you're being sarcastic. You've probably seen my Twitter. Like, I actually well, haven't gotten mine I, yet. I keep. Okay. Because yeah, I, I, I read some comments <laughs> that said that you were getting the sports watch. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, if you're getting the sports watch, there was a good chance that you already had it. And I was like, if he's already got it, then he's using it. Okay. So, but then I guess I, I didn't catch the parts where you said you didn't have it. Yeah. I, uh, I'm being a little bit dramatic about it. I'm, I'm kind of frustrated that I haven't gotten it. And I'm being a little dramatic on, uh, on Twitter. But I. Oh, I'm right there with you. You know, I was one of those idiots you know i mean i ordered it at, at 308 a.m i mean i was up oh, I, i'm on the east coast one minute ahead of me yeah and and i still landed in the may shipment uh group so i don't know hopefully i'll get it this month sometime but yeah i'm definitely planning calling it research is a little strong but the kind of stuff i did with the fitbit and the iphone mm, 6 field testing yes uh field testing yes thank you i can't wait to do that because i'm really really interested to see if it is a little even more accurate potentially than the iphone we'll see all right, so this is going to wrap it up for episode seven. Real quick, Eddie, do you want to tell us anything about you know where do you want people to find you online and what resources they should check out? I mentioned your book. I mean, I know it's been a few, <laughs> it's been a year or two, but that's a really good book and it's timely or and timeless, I should say. Start with the book. Yeah, I wrote a book with David Sparks, uh, a field guide, a co-authored uh, the Markdown field guide with David Sparks. Yeah, we released that. Gosh, it's been out a couple years at least, maybe three now. I, I lose track. It was, I think 2012 is when we released that. My blog is practicallyefficient.com. Twitter, I am uh, Eddie Smith, E-D-D-I-E underscore Smith. And those are the main places that I can be found online. Anybody who has an underscore in their Twitter handle is a good person. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to episode seven. You can find the show notes at tectonic.fm slash seven. And if you want to connect with us, we are also on Twitter at tectonic.fm. And send your feedback via email to hello at tectonic.fm. And if you want to actually help us out, you know, encourage other people to discover the show and take it seriously, give it a chance. If you write a review for us on iTunes, that'll do that for us. You can go there and just click a star rating. It doesn't take you more than a few seconds. And if you leave a review, which, you know, takes you, what, five minutes or less, you can track that on your watch and see if you can meet that goal. That'd be great. And then when you're done, you're done, right? And you helped us. We helped out you track your life. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Tectonic, and we'll join you again next week.